0: Well, good morning. I know you are grateful, and I am grateful for the body of Christ that God provides so many uh, skilled and caring people to minister to so many different needs, and I just want to say thank you. Uh, I see some of you are back in the room, and um, we know that uh, God is continuing to work in this situation, and you'll want to continue to pray, Uh, but we are are so glad uh, that uh, we have just the many loving, caring uh, people that we have in our church uh, with us today. So, well, uh, before we get into our study this morning, um, as you've been seeing, today is the first day of Advent, this traditional season where Christ followers uh, take some time to prepare their hearts to be ready to celebrate uh, Christ's birth. And Uh, We are also just want you to know with some more specifics, kicking off our 2023 Christmas offering uh, today where each year we give over and above our regular giving to meet some special needs. And our goal this year is $25,000 and we're going to use it in a number of ways, but it will first be used to meet practical needs uh, for families in our church family and in our community. We uh, every year throughout the year, are able to help families with food and and clothing and and different kinds of bills. And this offering will go to just touch people's lives in that way. Uh, Our gifts this year are also going to be used for disaster relief support. And uh, I don't know if you're aware of this, but we have over 70 people at Southwinds who are trained to be disaster relief volunteers. And they travel at their own expense, use their own vacation time, uh, all of this uh, to minister to places of, of deep need. This last year, uh, we've had Southwinds uh, volunteers in New Orleans, in Texas, in Santa Barbara, and in Maui. And um, they have been helping hurricane victims and mudslide victims and fire uh, victims recover. And so we're gonna use uh, some of this offering to help those people who give of their time and their energy. And also we're going to uh, use some of these gifts to support Um, our missionaries in India and Germany. And so we want to just encourage you, would you begin today praying about what God would have you and your family do? Uh, You can designate uh, your gifts to Christmas offering. There's a place on the app to do that. Or if you're writing a check, you can simply uh, write that on the check, and we'll uh, use that uh, to serve uh, as God provides. So uh, if you're not there yet, uh, I want to encourage you to open your Bibles to Romans chapter eight. We are gonna be in verses 31 to 39. And we are completing our study today of this chapter that we've called a a summit uh, in the book of Romans. And then in in the rest of December, we're going to be taking some time uh, away to study some important Christmas passages before we come back uh, to Romans in 2024. So as we're diving into this passage, I have a quick question today. Um, and maybe a little true confession time. Is there anybody here who ate too much on Thursday, on Thanksgiving? Would you like to just share that with the rest of us? You had too much to eat. Some of you are still in a tryptophan coma even today. Um, Special graces today if you sleep in the sermon, I guess we'll we'll, we'll say about that. Well, on Thursday, out of curiosity, I I Googled how many average calories do we consume on Thanksgiving? Yeah, wow. (laughs) Wow. Um, and the numbers came in, depending on where I looked, from anywhere like an amazing 3,000 calories to a staggering 6,000 calories. Yeah, some of you, you know, you know who you are. Well, I just mentioned this today because we're here, and I don't know how many calories you consumed on Thursday, but I do know today on Sunday that in Romans 8:31 to 39, we have a feast. And it is a feast of rich, meaty, gospelicious truth that God has for us today, that Paul is setting for us. Romans 8, 28 to 39 might be the 12 most encouraging verses in the whole Bible. Now, if you are here last week, we looked at the first three of those verses, and we saw in verse 28 that the, this life-changing, heart-thrilling, courage-building promise, which says, and we know that in all things God works for those who love God for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. Paul in that verse is telling us that God is so in charge of our lives and so in, in charge of the universe that all that happens to his people is used for our good, all of it, not just some of it, not just part of it, not just the good and the easy things, but also the hard and the bad things we talked about how all things in verse 28 actually means all things, even suffering, which means that nothing in our lives is ever wasted. Aren't you glad? Nothing comes into our lives that can stop God's purposes. It all works together for the good of those who love God. And we know, we talked about this, that we only experience this in part now. We're going to experience it in full in eternity. We're going to see it all then. And we know that God may not always do it the way that we want, but we trust as his people that he sees and he knows what we do not and that he has all the power in all of the universe at his disposal to fulfill all of his promises for us for his glory and for our joy and it is so crucial today to see that Paul is not saying this might be the case or I hope it's going to be the case or it's most of the time the case or it would be really nice if if God would work like this Paul is speaking true truth It, it is real Reality. He is making this promise on the authority of God. You can bank your life on this promise that if you are in Christ, God wants you to live out of these realities. And I'm saying all of this because as Paul is closing Romans 8... It's like he is seeking to take what he's been telling us and press home these realities, press them down into our lives. And he does this through this series of rhetorical questions. And you're going to see as we go through these that he is first referring back to what he's just said in Romans 8, 28 through 30. But he's also wanting us to look back all the way to the beginning of Romans, to look at Romans 1 through 8, as he's told us about our sin and about our hopelessness, about God's grace and God's mercy and love for us in Jesus, about the freedom we now have from sin's penalty and sin's power, about no condemnation that we have now, about the Holy Spirit, about all the glory that is awaiting for all of us who are God's people. It's like Paul is saying to all of us, have you listened? How Are you hearing what I'm telling you? Can you see that God is for us? that's what he wants us to know. Do you see how good God is? Can can you, can you see how knowing God is for you in Jesus changes everything, how you pray and how you hope and how you love and how you forgive. It causes you to treasure God more than anything in this life. It gives you hope for beyond this life. And it means that. When we suffer, we don't just see our suffering. We we see through our suffering as an opportunity for God to work for our good in 10,000 ways, seen and unseen. We don't just see our tears, but we see through our tears in blurred vision, looking to our saving King, knowing that this heartache or this disappointment will not have the last word in our lives. We don't just see depression settling in over us like a dark cloud. We see through our depression to our omnipotent ally, Jesus, and we believe that he will take us through. You see, Paul's goal in this passage today is to take these realities and write these realities on our hearts in holy, hope-filled fire so that they will light up the dark when we're in the dark and we will never let go of this truth that God is for us. With all of that in our minds, I want to read this passage. I want you to be thinking about what Paul has just been telling us as we hear his words, beginning in verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but... nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And all God's people say, Amen. I mean, what? At a feast, right? What, what a feast. And if you want to think about it like this, here's what I'll suggest to you. This is like Paul is laying out for us a five-course gospel feast. And it is so rich. There's so much here. And, and he just wants us to take it all in. He wants us to feed on this, to feast on this, because it will change our lives. So with this in mind, let me give you the first thing that Paul is saying to us. He says, if a sovereign God is on my side, what opposition... Could defeat me. That's what verse 31 says. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? And I think it's pretty obvious. You can tell Paul is saying God is for us. No question. No question. So that must mean it is clear that no one or nothing can be against us. But, but what does that tell us? What does it mean? Well, let's think about it. What Paul has just said here. Paul knows Paul knows that many things and many people are against us, right? In fact, if you go down a couple verses, verse 35, he actually makes this list of some of the things that can be against us. I mean, just look around. What about the world that opposes Jesus and hates Jesus' people? Isn't that against us? What about our own sinful hearts, indwelling sin that we still struggle with? You know, Romans 7, Romans 6, all that stuff we we talked about there. What about death? Aren't those things against us? See, there's a lot of things that are against us. So what is Paul saying? I think he is, first of all, pointing right back to verse 28. For those who love God, all things work together for good. And though that doesn't mean we always get what we want, it doesn't mean good in just a material or physical sense. What, what it means, Paul is telling us, and what we are seeing right here is that this good he's talking about means our ultimate good in being glorified with Jesus. See, Paul knows that many people and many circumstances come against us in this broken and and groaning world. So he's not saying that, that no one will ever oppose us. He's just saying that nothing that opposes us can thwart God's good purposes for us. That God will so work in us that none of those things that come against us will devastate us or defeat us in the end. You see, whatever may come against us, God is always at work and he will be working in our lives in such a way to always provide for us, to always fulfill his purposes for us, to always wean us away from sin's false promises, to always ensure that we keep going and we persevere to the end so that we all become more and more like Jesus. And just to like zero in on it and get real practical about it, what it means is that whatever we face becomes in God's hand an instrument of mercy for our good in one way or another, that God takes even those things that are against us and he turns them into something good. So for example, you get slandered or you get gossiped about and the father works to shape your soul to be more like Jesus, who by the way, don't forget, was lied about. Or you are forced to wait just want to check real quick here. Who here likes to wait? Who here thinks waiting is your spiritual gift? Anybody want to claim that one? Nobody likes to wait, but sometimes we have to wait, right? We, we have to wait. And, and yet the father takes our waiting and he weaves it into the fabric of our lives so that we become more trustful and we become more joyful in him. Or you get sick. And in your sickness, the Father comforts you so that you can comfort others in a way you otherwise couldn't. Or maybe you experience prolonged singleness or infertility and the Father uses that experience, that painful experience to deepen your faith in his word. Or or maybe you just walk through this devastating failure in your life, but the Father uses that to show you new dimensions of his love for you. Or maybe you're killed tragically accidentally. And yet even then the father raises you to a new and glorified and perfect and eternal life. You see, nothing can ultimately harm the people that God has foreknown, predestined, called justified and glorified, as he said in verses 29 and 30. That's what Paul is getting at when he says in verse 31, if God is for us, who can be against us? They may be against us temporarily, but ultimately they cannot be against us because God will take whatever we go through and he'll work it around and he'll make it into something that is good in our lives. You know, I could give you example after example after example, and and this is not like an equation where you just plug the parts in or a magic formula where you just do the first parts and the rest happens. God is too creative for that. What Paul is saying is the point is that he's doing this. He's doing this. He's doing 10,000 things every hour of every day in all of our lives. And we don't even know he's always working and he's always achieving everything that he sets out to do. And so when we find ourselves sometimes thinking, God really can't be doing this or nothing good could ever come out of this, we we may think that, but I wanna tell you, Paul would tell you, this is not reality. Paul is saying that God can turn every bad thing in your life into something good. And it's not hard for him. Anybody need to be reminded of that? And we don't always understand, of course. Sometimes we may not exceed the explanation in this life, but only in eternity. But God is always, always at work. And I just want to ask you right now, stop for a moment. Can you see how feasting on this, how sinking the teeth of your heart through faith into this reality, can you see how it will give you strength? Can you see how it would give you courage, how it changes the way you pray, how you handle heartache, how you deal with criticism, how you wrestle with unfulfilled expectations? I mean, that's the point. And I I want to ask you to ask yourself, how would my life change if I didn't just hear this as this abstract, intellectual, external truth to my life, but I instead took it and ate it and lived on it and feasted on it and believed it and began to live out of it. What would my life be like? That's what Paul serves us for this first course, and it's so good, isn't it? The second thing Paul says is, if God gave me his greatest treasure, why would I worry? Why would I worry? Verse 32 is where he's telling this. this. You know, economists say that we, the value something has is shown only by what someone is willing to pay for it. I've heard this called the eBay rule. You know that, right? Like you got something it's in your garage and it's worth a lot of money, right? You've been telling everybody it's worth a lot of money. Put it on eBay. It may turn out nobody wants to pay more than five bucks for it. That's what it's worth. Well, think about that as we read again, verse 32, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? See, see, Paul is, is making a, a logical move here. Um, philosophers would call this the argument from the greater to the lesser. If God gave us his most precious possession to save us, then why should we worry about him supplying any of the rest of our needs? Paul is just saying, if the father gives us the son to substitute for us and take our sin on his behalf, on our behalf, then he will surely give us the lesser things that we need in this life. The father is already giving us what is most valuable. How would he not also give us what is least valuable? And then you have to stop and see what this means, what this is telling us about the value of Jesus to the Father. Paul is saying that the value of Jesus to the Father is of greater value than all things. And if you could just imagine with me for a moment, if you were to take all of the riches and power and splendor and achievements of every empire that has ever been, is, or ever will be, and then you add on top of that, the sheer worth of all that is in God's created order from seashells to star clusters, from valleys to mountain vistas, from undiscovered ocean depths, all to the reaches, outer reaches of space. And then on top of that, you add all all the worth of all the material creations of human beings with, with our creativity that we have because we're made in God's image is all the things that we have, have have come up with, skyscrapers and bridges and cars and ships and medicines. And, and then you would add on top of that the, the wonder-filled worth of all of life's joys, like the gift of laughter and love and dancing and music and imagination and moose tracks, ice cream. And then on top of that, add to it the value of every human being who has ever lived and then take all of that together, combine it all in one massive pile and it is worth less than nothing compared with the value of Jesus To the Father. That's what Paul is saying here. There is nothing dearer, nothing more precious, nothing more excellent, nothing more beautiful to the Father than the Son. And listen to me the Father gave us the Son. The Father gave us His Son. I mean, can you believe that? If the Father loved people like us, rebels, His enemies, you know, Romans 5, Romans 3, Romans 2, Romans 1, so much that he would give us what is most precious to him. Then how is he going to withhold anything we truly need from us? See, Paul's point is he won't. Jesus is the Father's pledge to his people that he will always provide. And we can rest knowing that if God gave us Jesus, he will always give us whatever we need, these all things. So what are these all things? What what does this mean? Well, it is not the false promises of the prosperity gospel that God is going to make you healthy and wealthy if you just have enough faith and So many people believe that. They hear it and believe it and and then life gets hard and they're devastated and then they're crushed and they blame themselves. Or some people who hear that, they end up blaming God because God didn't give them the life they wanted because they they heard and they believe that life and reality is about them, not about God. So it's not that. All things is ultimately a reference to the new heavens and the new earth. The the glory that we've been talking about earlier in Romans 8, you know, what God, all that God has in store for all of those who are heirs with Jesus. I mean, that really is all things. Maybe you can write it down like this. It is our inheritance as God's children. That's the all things, ultimately. But temporarily, like right now, all things also means all things now that we need to glorify Jesus All things now that we need to be satisfied in Jesus now and forever. Everything that we need to trust him and enjoy him and become more like him and to love other people and to grow in holiness. All of that's ours. It's ours now. All things. The father doesn't withhold from his children. And we might get sick at some point and our singleness might continue. And we might lose a child and our life might end early. So all things cannot mean perfect health and thriving marriages and long life and full bank accounts or your kids always outliving you. Never forget, friend, that Jesus, your Lord, was crucified. Paul, the apostle, had his head cut off because he preached the gospel. Was the father providing all things for them? And the answer is yes. Yes, everything they needed to face persecution, to have hope in darkness, to rejoice in their pain, to resist temptation, to put sin to death. In other words, he gave them and he is giving us whatever we need most in this world that is under the siege of sin. See, if the father has given us the son, which he has, which is his greatest treasure then he will certainly give us everything else that we need. And I want to stop again and ask you, do you believe that? Do you believe that? That God will not ultimately withhold anything from you that you ultimately need? If you struggle with that, if you wrestle with that, just remind yourself, the father gave me his son. The father gave me his son. See, God, again, in, in this passage, is just calling his people to feast on his goodness, to take these truths and eat them, to imbibe them and then to embody them and to live them out by faith day after day after day. Here's the third course. Number three, if God accepts me, whose approval would I need? Verse 33 says, what or who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Now the elect here in verse 33 are are, are the people that Paul says God foreknew and predestined back in verse 29. And what he's really asking, is anybody gonna be able to highlight any outstanding guilt or sin in the life of God's people? And he's using legal terminology here. He's most likely referring to the the day of the final judgment. But it also applies to how we see ourselves now today in this moment. And, and, And so some of us might read this and might think to ourselves, well, I actually feel like there's, you know, a lot. A lot that could be brought against me. Anybody feeling that right now? You don't have to raise your hands. But we all receive con- condemnation and accusation. Our consciences accuse us, don't they? We know all the times that we've failed and we've sinned. We know that we're not where we'd hope we would be at this point in our lives. And sometimes in our struggles, we find ourselves asking, am I too far gone? Did I, did I push past God's limit? Will God forgive me again? Or maybe does God even like me anymore? Our conscience has us and the devil, he accuses us. He's called the accuser of the brethren. And have you noticed he's really good at it? And in part, we know he's right. That, that's why his accusations land sometimes, right? Or or maybe you have critics in your life. Who has critics in your life? Maybe there there are people in your life and they love to like tear you down. They they, they, they love to shame you. And and some of the things they say is true, right? And see, when we give into this, it, it steals our joy. It threatens our assurance. And maybe some of us have imagined ourselves one day standing before God And having someone stand up to accuse us and say, God, don't forget all the things he's done. Don't forget all the ways she has failed you. Make sure, God, that you keep a record, have a record of his anger, of her lust. Make sure, God, that you mark down their pride. Oh, also, he was a terrible father and she was a terrible mother. And don't forget, God, she had an abortion And don't forget, God, that he encouraged, he paid for the abortion. Make sure you write that down. And Paul's response, it's right there in the verse. Can you see it up there on the screen? It is God who justifies. See, all of these things might be true and much worse. But Paul is saying in Christ, each of God's elect ones are justified. That God takes rebels and he makes them his and he cleans them off and he gives them new life and he gives them new hope and he declares them righteous before his presence by faith in his son. Which means uh, all of the charges against us have been heard by the father and they have been dealt with all of them. We've been talking about this quite a lot in this series through Romans, that that we are not merely forgiven, but we are clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. We have this new status before the Father, and this means right here that we will not be accused on the day of judgment because we are now in Christ fully and forever right in God's sight by faith. And so, In the face of these kinds of accusations, God will say, I see nothing on his or her record except the righteousness of my son. It is God who justified. The judge of all the earth has rendered his verdict and that verdict will never change. And that means that you and I, God's people, God's children can live every day And we can face judgment day with a hope-filled confidence and with joy and with gratitude. We do not have to be afraid because everything is known and everything has been forgiven. We have been justified in Christ. I say, are you, again, I want to keep asking this, are are you receiving this reality by faith? Are are you feasting on God's goodness to you? Are you living as a justified one? Anybody getting kind of full yet? You think you need to lay down and rest for a while, take a nap. The feast is still going on. We got more. We got more. Uh, The fourth course if Jesus is interceding for me, why would I live in guilt? Verse 34 says, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. And if that Fourth question sounds a lot like the third. You're reading it right. But Paul's talking about it, kind of a different angle. In verse 33, he's talking about the charges against us. Verse 34, he's dealing with like the sentence that would be rendered against us if we were found guilty. And he just says, who would possibly condemn, pronounce a sentence of guilty on Jesus' people? And he's saying, no one, no one can. And, And what does he base this assurance on? Well, look at the text. He says, first of all, Jesus died. Jesus died to take our condemnation. He received it in our place so that we could be free. Our debt has been paid. Our curse has been born. But then he says, that's not all. It's kind of like those shows some of you watch on some of those networks where it's like, that's not all. You buy stuff. You know, you just keep buying stuff. That's not all. Are you talking with me here? Nobody wants to admit they watch those shows. (laughs) That's not all. Jesus also rose from the dead to demonstrate that he had paid sin's debt in full. No more sin, no more guilt, only life. But that's not all. Paul says Jesus has ascended to God's right hand where he is now ruling the universe. In Ephesians 1, 20 to 21, Paul says that Jesus is seated at the Father's right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion above every name that is named in this age and also in the age to come. And Paul now caps it off by saying, on top of everything I have just told you, he is also interceding for us. The one who loved me so much that he died for me is also the one who is reigning over all things, is also the one who is praying for me. He is my omnipotent ally. This is like, I was trying to think, how do I describe this? And this is what I came up with. It's like a tsunami of truth. It just washes over us of who God is and all that God is for us in Jesus. Listen, the only person who could condemn us is our almighty advocate who has fully paid our debt by dying for us and who is now constantly interceding for us. This is why Paul said back in verse one of this chapter, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And here's what this should do in your life. This should silence. It should silence your negative self-talk This should put to rest and silence your self-loathing, your insecurities, all those moments and ways in which you doubt yourself. The question is, why would I live in guilt? Now, some of you may be thinking this right now. Or maybe you've heard someone say this at one time, or maybe you've even said it yourself. Well, I believe that Jesus forgives me, but I just can't forgive myself. And I have to ask a question, and I ask it with kindness, but I also want to ask it in truth. What does that say? about how we see ourselves. And I think of at least two things I could point out. First, it says, if you say that, if you think that, that the way you see yourself matters more to you than the way God sees you. If God, through faith in Jesus, his son, does not condemn you, then how can you condemn you? It also, I think, says something more fundamental. Secondly, when someone says they can't forgive themselves, even though God promises to forgive them, they are saying that their identity is not being determined by God and by what God says, but instead by what they think about themselves. Psychologists say that your identity is established by whatever it is the most important person in your life thinks about you. And if that person is you, or maybe someone else whose opinion you live for, then you will always struggle with guilt. Do you see, if you're saying, I can't forgive myself, that means you're still looking to self instead of your savior for your worth. That means that today you need to reestablish God as the most important person in your life because here's the truth, friend. I am who God says I am. I'm not who others say I am. I am not who my distorted conscience says I am. I am who God says I am. And until we get this and accept this, until we feast on this and feed on this truth that God has set us free from guilt, and we're gonna struggle, we're gonna languish in guilt, and God does not want us to be there and do that and live that way. Here's the the final question, the final course in the feast. And Paul is really like summing everything up with this fifth question. He says, if nothing can separate me from Christ's love, then why would I ever fear? Verse 35 says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? And Paul is just asking this question. Can anything separate us from God's love? And he knows that everything is at stake with this question. To know that God loves you and that nothing can separate you from that love is so life-giving and so freeing. And it leads to humility and it leads to courage and it leads to risk-taking faith and it leads to love for other people. It leads to hope in suffering. It just changes everything. Everything rides on whether or not we can be separated from the love of God. And so I just wanna ask you to think about it deeply and honestly, am I living as a deeply loved child? or am i living as someone who might be separated from god's love now it's kind of interesting you can tell as you look at this passage paul knows the objections that people like us are going to raise and he knows that we are going to face all kinds of circumstances that seem to question god's love for us and so he starts in verse 35 to list what ends up being a list of 17 threats potential threats to god's love and he begins in verse 35 by listing seven of them and they're they're all pretty self-explanatory so i'm not going to kind of go through them i think you can tell what they're what they mean but but these are the kinds of things that when they come into our lives, they make us question God's love, right? We wonder when we face these things, will these things be able to come between me and God's love? And maybe God doesn't love me, we ask when we're in these places. Maybe God isn't in charge. Maybe God doesn't care about me. How could God really love me if he would let something so terrible like this into my life? And some people take stuff like this. And they walk away from Jesus entirely and they say, if this is what following Jesus costs me, then I'm out of here. I'm not gonna believe. But Paul's point here is these painful realities, they are not evidences of God's lack of love for his people. Rather, they are evidences that we live in a broken world that is under the siege of sin. Even the most faithful of God's people suffer pain, suffer heartache. So we must not see pain and suffering as a sign God doesn't love us. And sometimes, sometimes all of us, I think, feel like this verse from Psalm 44 that Paul quotes in verse 36. As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. And this verse is kind of jarring in the middle of this this great, beautiful, soaring rhetoric that Paul is, you know, laying out. There, all of a sudden, he says, "We're being killed." You know, you probably never memorized this verse in Awana, did you? <laughs> Psalm forty four twenty two. Honey, what did you learn at church today? We are being killed all the day long. see, Paul knows sometimes we feel like that, right? Sometimes in suffering, that's what it seems like. But Paul is telling us that is not what is going on. Would you look at verse 37, the verse that follows this quotation from Psalm 44. He says in verse 37, no. He says no. Everybody say no. No. No, no. no Paul says in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. This verb loved is in the past tense because Paul is pointing back to the cross as the supreme manifestation of God's love. And, and Paul is highlighting in all of this passage that believers are not exempt from trials. And, and, you know, that reality alone should calm our souls when we are suffering because we know this is normal. This is not unusual. This is not out, out of out of the scope of reality. This is the way life is in this world. You live in a broken world. And, in fact, maybe you, you would notice that little word in in verse 37, in, I, in. Paul says, in all these things, in all these things. We are more than conquerors. We conquer in them, not by escaping them. And so God's pledge to his people is not that we're not gonna suffer. His son, Jesus, suffered. His pledge is instead that our suffering will never separate us from his love. And so this just means that all the trials in our lives that cause us to call into question God's love for us. We may not understand what he is doing, but we can always trust that he is working, that he loves us and that he has given us everything in his son. Maybe someone needs to write this down. Maybe someone needs to take this home. Maybe someone needs to pray over this next statement. We must not interpret God's character by our circumstances. We must learn to interpret our circumstances by God's character. See, Paul, I think, knows that we still may not be convinced. And so in verses 38 and 39, he lists 10 more possible threats. For I am sure he says that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, that's probably demonic powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so being loved by God, again, does not mean that we are magically transported out of this sin-sick world. It doesn't mean that we won't get sick. It doesn't mean that our loved ones won't die. It doesn't mean that everyone's gonna love you and always say good things about you. It doesn't mean that our lives won't sometimes be unexpectedly cut short. It doesn't mean that your life is always gonna go exactly the way you hoped it would or that you would never fail or that you would never have regrets or that you would never feel stuck in your life or that you won't lose the job, or that you won't cry, or that you won't struggle, that you won't get frustrated with all the ways that all of your weaknesses keep holding you back. These are all part of living in this broken world of groaning, this world under the siege of sin. What it does mean is that no matter what happens, no matter where we are, no matter what we're going through, we are actively being loved by God through the son, by the spirit, that nothing will ever separate us from his love. Maybe you're a college student and you're fearful of the future because the economy sucks Can you listen to me right now? You are loved. Maybe you're stuck in unwanted singleness or unwanted infertility or middle life monotony. Listen to me. You are loved. Maybe you find yourself in a hospital bed or suffering from a terminal illness. You are loved by God. Maybe you're wrestling with sinful habits or wicked urges that you do not want, but you still have and you don't know what to do. You are loved by God. Maybe you're confused or you're anxious or you're depressed or you're divorced or you're struggling as a parent and you're, you're just feeling so many things you don't know what to do with. Well, whoever you are, you are loved by God. And this love is beyond anything we can know. It is always for our good. It is always working in us. It is always doing what we most need to have done in our lives. And so therefore we should rest in that love and we should submit to God's plan. Have you learned that the more you fight against God's plan in your life, the more frustrated and the more disillusioned you can become? Have you learned that the more we submit to God's plan and God's life, that the more at rest we are, the more peace we have, the more joy we know? And I'm not saying, please do not hear me to say that you cannot pray big prayers and ask God for healing and ask God for rescue. Pray those prayers, beseech the father, ask him. He's a good father. He loves you. Ask those things. And sometimes he answers those prayers and he does what we ask. But even if he does not, we are still being loved. We are loved by God. He is loving us right Now, at this moment, whatever we are facing, Jesus who gave his life for us, who is now reigning at the right hand of the Father with all power in the universe at his disposal. Jesus is loving us and he is seeing to it that all of God's plans and purposes for our lives and for this whole universe will be brought to completion and he's doing it minute by minute, day by day, week after week and month after month and year after year and decade after decade, century after century, on and on and on into eternity so that he gets the glory and we get the joy. God is so good. And when we are persuaded of his love, we can know peace. We can know what it means to be more than a conqueror. Paul is just saying to us that we are foreknown in love, predestined in love called in love, justified in love and glorified in love. And the father decreed it and Jesus achieved it. And the spirit is just working it all out. You are loved. Anybody want to say amen right now? We're just loved. We're loved by the father. I want to close um, by pointing this out, what Paul has been doing in this section. He, He begins In verse 28, with that one massive promise that we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for God's purposes. And then he follows that promise with those five mighty mercies of God in verses 29 and 30. And then in verses 31 to 39, as we've been seeing today, he, he puts on top of that five rhetorical questions just to, to draw out and enlarge our understanding of how much God loves us in Jesus. And then he concludes, as we've been seeing, with 17 potential threats to deepen our grasp of the overruling, incomparable, indestructible love of God. Put it all together. Some of you math people have already done it in your heads, and that makes for 28 massive, interconnected, assurances. That God is for us, not against us. God is for us. I mean, what a feast, right? What a what a feast. Are, are you stuffed now? Anybody need to lie down now? You can go home and do that if you need to. But I just want to say, I I hope you're seeing it. This is our God. This is our Father. This is our God. He is for us. He's not against us. And so whatever you are facing in this life, never forget, never forget, God is for us. This is God's word, Southwinds. Will all God's people together say amen. Amen. Let's bow for prayer. Father God, all we can say is thank you. Lord, just help us to live out of the realities that you have laid before us, this unbelievable feast of truth. Lord, it, it can be shocking sometimes how much resistance There can be inside us to such good news. And maybe even now, God, some of us are saying, surely God can't love me like that. And surely not after all that I have done. And Lord, maybe that's true for some people, but not for me. Lord, would you, I just pray right now, would you rebuke those lies in us? Would you help us to see them for what they are, that they're lies And God, would you help us to replace the lies with your truth that's revealed in your word. Lord, help us not to merely look at your love from a distance, but to receive it, to feast on it as the wonderful, beautiful love for God's children that it is. And then Lord, by your love, would you transform us individually and as your people, Lord, this Love is what our neighborhoods and our communities need. Lord, what, what all people long for, even though they don't know it. So Lord, help us. We ask to be a people that believe in your love and trust in your love and rest in your love and embody your love. And Lord, most of all now share your love, all for your glory. Lord, we love you. And we thank you for loving us first. We pray all these things in Jesus' name and all God's people said.